As we look through Ephesians, my goal is not like to hurry through it and to finish the book, which we will finish it. But I don't want to hurry through it and finish it because it's kind of like if you got a steak, you don't want to hurry through the steak. You want to take your time, eat it, chew on it, enjoy it. And I think for us to really appreciate and get into the depths of Ephesians and understand the verses of Ephesians and then how the book of Ephesians fits into the whole, we want to look at Ephesians, how it fits in. Not just the verses, but the entire book, which then takes a little more time. But I think when we're done, we'll be able to say, oh, I get Ephesians. I understand it. It really makes sense to me. We started off with Ephesians 1, 3, which says, Blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And so that Paul begins listing these blessings. He tells us that these blessings were predestined before time began. He tells us that the predestined plan of these blessings, how they came to us, and then how we acquire them just through faith. And then he lists them, for he chose us, we looked at this last week, in him, the us being Jew and Gentile in one body, the church, the family of God. For he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's the predestined plan. Before the foundation, God chose that through Christ that we would be holy and blameless in his presence. And then we move on to Ephesians 1, 5 and 6. In love, he predestined us for adoption as his sons, Through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the beloved one. That's Jesus. So we see that the motivation for this predestined plan, this plan that God determined before time, that the motivation is love. God loves us and God has predestined a plan or put together a plan. He's the architect of this plan so that you and I could be in relationship with him. And it's it's a plan that's motivated by how much he loves us. It's a loving plan. He's a loving God. So it says, in love, God predestined. That's the first time this word is used. The, The word before is chosen. This is the first time the word predestined is used. He predestined us. Predestined simply means he determined beforehand. It's like an architect who determines before the building's ever built how the building's going to be built and has all the plans, and then people carry out that plan. Well, God had a plan as well. In Ephesians, it's a plan called the church, Jew and Gentile in one body, the family of God, that God determined beforehand would happen, which was a mystery that we looked at last week. Nobody knew it. You couldn't find it in Scripture. Everything was Judaism. But this idea called the church, this mystery, was hidden in the heart of God until he gave the revelation of the mystery to Paul. And then Paul got the responsibility of taking this message that Judaism has come to an end, the law has come to an end, the commandments have come to an end, the rules, the regulations, the requirements, the diets, the days, the duties, and the demands of the law were nailed to the cross. They've come to an end. That's a difficult message to have to deliver, and that's why he was being chased down by so many people who were like what he used to be. They were now chasing him down. So in love, he predestined us for adoption as his sons, and we're going to look at that in just a moment to really understand how that fits into the whole. In love, he predestined us, Jew and Gentile in one body, the church, for adoption as sons, it'll make sense here in a moment, through Jesus Christ. Or through Christ, we would become placed into the family of God as sons. All right, hold on to that thought. According to the good pleasure of his will. The motivation is love. God gets pleasure out of placing us into his family as sons and daughters. It brings him joy for us to be in relationship with him. And it was his will. And then Paul stops for a moment, which he does periodically in Ephesians. And he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul's word for everything God has done for us in Christ is grace. It's all his grace. It's all his his unmerited kindness, his unconditional love, his unearned blessings. 
his unlimited forgiveness. And Paul said, we're just going to put a word on this and we're going to call it grace. He talks about God's glorious, amazing, marvelous grace. And he defines what that is, which he has freely given us in the beloved one or the one he loves. So God has given you and I grace in Christ. That's the predestined plan. What's been predestined is the plan. That's what's been predestined. Not the individual to salvation, but the plan has been predestined. And it's a plan where God has freely given to us these spiritual blessings through what Christ did for us. And probably next week, we'll get in a little bit into what he's freely given us and the role of the Holy Spirit in helping us understand what God has freely given us in Christ. Let's zero in for a moment on this phrase, in love he predestined us for adoption as his sons. That's really central and that's really key to understanding the church in general, which God uh, was a mystery, which God predestined that one day would come. So let's look at sons and daughters of the Father. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 3, 24, through chapter 4, verse 7. And there's two words that Paul uses in these verses. One is weos, which means adult, mature son or daughter. And the other is nipios, which means infant, toddler, child, immature, unlearned, babyish, childish, in need of a babysitter, in need of a guardian. So those are the two Greek words Paul uses. So, number one is the Jews were babies, toddlers, and children under the law. Nepios. Galatians 3, 24 through 25 says, So the law became our guardian. Now, the hour here is not Jew and Gentile. The hour here is, is Jews. The Gentiles were never under the law of Moses. The law of Moses was never the guardian for the Gentiles. Remember, they were separate from God. We looked at it last week, without hope, without the covenants, without the law, without the commandments. They had no revelation of who God was. But the Jewish people says the law was their guardian to lead us to Christ. So the purpose of the law was to lead the people of Israel to their Messiah, to Christ. The purpose of the law was so that the Jewish nation would come to an awareness and a recognition of what the Messiah was actually coming to do, to be their Savior. I don't know I need a Savior until I know that I'm a sinner. And once I know I'm a sinner, then I'll know I need a Savior. They understood that he's coming to be king. The word Christ means, it's the combination of of two thoughts. It's Savior, King. Sometimes we'll sing songs. It has the word Savior and King in it. Savior, King, Savior, King. That's what the word Christ or Messiah means. That God was bringing one into the world who was the Christ or the Messiah. He was both Savior and he was both King. Savior, he was coming to bear a cross to save us from our sins. King, he was coming to wear a crown to rule over the earth as King. And so, Savior King. But he can't be a king until he's a savior because his kingdom requires righteous people. Only righteous people can live in the kingdom. Well, the problem with the entire human race is we're all unrighteous. The law convinces us of our unrighteousness. Romans chapter 3, 19 through 20. So, righteousness then comes by grace through faith in Jesus. So, he populates his kingdom when people understand their sinfulness and place their faith in him for righteousness because he took our sinfulness upon the cross and he gives us his righteousness. So the king becomes the savior so he can populate his kingdom with righteous people. We can't make ourselves righteous only through faith in Christ are we declared to be righteous. That's the idea of Christ. So the law was a guardian to lead the people of Israel to Christ, and the Gentiles too. If, if we look at the Ten Commandments, we fail miserably to obey the commandments. The last commandment, thou shalt not covet, is breaking all the rest of them in my heart. It's the only one that's internal. All the rest are external. And so God saves number 10 to deal with the internal where sin really finds its root. That's why Jesus said, hey, 
I know you may have never committed adultery externally, but if you've had lust in your heart, you're as guilty as if you've done it externally. I know you may have not murdered anybody with your hands, but if you've been angry at them in your heart, you're guilty of murder. He's trying to convince the Pharisees that they're sinners. They were basing their righteousness on the externals. And Jesus is saying, hey, you may look good externally, but on the inside, you're filthy. And in Romans 7, 7 through 25, we find a guy trying to be righteous through the law. And he's trying to obey commandment number 10, which is thou shalt not covet. And the more he tries not to covet, the more he covets. Yesterday, one of my sons and I went out to the softball field and we were hitting softballs, getting ready for the season. And it's, it's been, you know, a while since we hit. And Philip's up there, he's really wanting to hit hard. And he's taking some really serious cuts. And, and the harder he tries to hit it, the less harder he hits it. He's popping up. And I just said, hey, just easy swings, easy swings. And bam, when those easy swings came, that ball just starts jumping off the bat. And so the harder he tried to hit it, the less harder he hit it. But the less harder he tried to hit it, the more harder he hit it. That's the Christian life. The harder we try, the more we fail. And then when we depend upon what Christ has done for us, that's the success. It's his righteousness. It's his work. It's his cross. The Pharisees were trying hard to be righteous. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 10, he asked a question. Hey, so the Jewish people who were trying to be righteous, they were trying to pursue righteousness through works, Romans 10, did not get righteousness. But the Gentiles who weren't even trying to be righteous accepted the free gift of righteousness by faith. Paul said, yes, that's it. So the law became our guardian to lead us to Christ, to show us our sinfulness, to show us our need for a Savior, that we might be justified or declared to be innocent by faith. So the law shows me that I'm guilty and leads me to Jesus who hands me his innocence and who, who took our guilt upon himself at the cross so that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So here's what he's saying. Those who come to faith in Christ don't need the law to tell them how to live. Those who've come to faith in Christ do not need the Ten Commandments. They do not need the book of Leviticus. They do not need the law that's in Exodus. They do not need the law that's in Deuteronomy. That law says in Romans chapter 10, Christ is the end of the law for those who believe. So we don't bring the law of Moses and the cross of Jesus into the church. The law of Moses is not for the church, the people who've come to faith in Christ. The law was a guardian until faith came, faith in Christ. Paul's trying to convince the Jewish people who are in Galatia and the Gentiles, whom the Judaizers have come in, and they're trying to convince these believers, not only do you need the cross of Jesus, but you need the law of Moses. It's the blood of Christ and the works of the law that justifies a person. And Paul said, no, it's by faith in Christ. Don't bring the law into this new family called the church or the body of Christ. It was a guardian that's no longer needed. So number two is we are sons and daughters under grace. Paul changes his Greek word here, which is interesting. It says, you are all, both Jew and Gentile, sons, that's weos, of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now notice, under the law, we're babies, we're children, we're infants, we're toddlers who need a babysitter, who need a guardian, who need somebody to take them by the hand and lead them around. The believer in Christ is not a child. The believer in Christ is a son or a daughter. And we're going to look at that in a moment, how it relates to Ephesians 1, 4. So you are all, that's all those who come to faith in Christ, Jew and Gentile, you're sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ or placed into Christ have now clothed yourself with Christ. He said, hey, don't clothe yourself with the law of Moses. Don't clothe yourself with religious activity. Don't clothe yourself with trying to get what Jesus is giving for free, which is righteousness, which is the subject of Galatians. How does a person become righteous before God? How does a person become acceptable to God? How does a person become innocent before God and forgiven by God? Is it faith in Jesus plus nothing? 
Is it faith in Jesus plus something else, or is it just something else? Those are the only three ways we can become righteous. And what Paul is saying, the only way you and I can be righteous before God is faith in Jesus, period. And so he's saying, don't bring the law. The law is for infants. The law are for those who haven't come to faith in Christ. You've clothed yourself with Christ. So there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And the promise was this coming promise of righteousness. That one was going to come through Abraham's seed. It's going to be a seed of Abraham who was going to enable people to be righteous. And then Abraham would have descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. And so Abraham's descendants are spiritual descendants who've come to faith in Christ. And God says, you're righteous. Remember in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, God had come to Abraham in Genesis 12 and said, you're going to be the father of a great nation and the world's going to be blessed through you and whoever blesses this nation is going to be blessed and whoever curses the nation is going to be cursed. And then he takes Abraham out a few chapters later. He says, look at the stars of the sky. If you can count the stars of the sky, then your descendants are going to be greater than the stars of the sky, which you can't even begin to count. And it says, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul goes back to this in Romans 4, and he also spends a lot of time on it in Galatians 3, that a right standing before God is by believing plus nothing, faith plus nothing, that you and I can feel right about our relationship with God, not because we do right, but because of what Christ did for us when all of our wrongs were nailed to the cross. And he gives us his rightness, his righteousness. So we're Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Let's move to number three. The Jews were slaves under law. So Paul says this, What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, that's the word nepios, he is no different than a slave, although he's the owner of everything. Think about it like this. If I'm the heir of a billion dollars, my dad's a billionaire, and I'm the heir of a billion dollars, that means that I'm going to get a billion dollars at a set time. Whenever I turn a specific age, I'm going to get a billion dollars. But as long as I'm a child, it might be put in a trust fund or should something happen, but it's, it's not mine. So what Paul is saying is there's something that God has for us, this blessing, these spiritual blessings, the riches of God's grace, Paul calls it in Ephesians. The riches of God, these spiritual riches of God that God has for us, but they only can become ours when we move from being children to being sons and daughters. And as long as I'm a child, those blessings can't come to me. What Paul is saying in Galatians, the spiritual blessings that God has for the human race and specifically there for the Jewish people can't come to anybody who's under the law. Because the law is for children. The law is for infants. The law is for babies. The law is a guardian until a person comes to faith in Christ. When we come to faith in Christ, the identity changes from child to son, from child to daughter. And then God says, boom, here's your, here's your inheritance. You are forgiven. You are righteous. You are justified. You are innocent. You are holy. You are blameless. That's the spiritual inheritance that's ours in Christ when we are called sons through faith in Christ. So what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different than a slave. So if I'm in a family and my parents have servants, I'm no different than the servant as a child because they don't get anything and I don't get anything. So I'm no different. The difference is, is when I turn that certain age, then I become different. Paul's saying, hey, look, under law, you can't get blessed. Under grace, you're going to get blessed because your son's under grace. What I'm saying is that as long as the the heir is a child, he is no different than a slave. Although he is the owner of everything, can't be his yet because he's a child. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the date set by his father. So the father goes to the lawyer. He's got a billion dollars that he's going to give his son. And he talks with the lawyer. He says, when my son turns 21, I want that 
billion dollars to go to him, but not until he turns 21. That's what God's done. That I've got these blessings for the human race. These blessings are not going to come to the human race until Christ dies on the cross. And when Christ dies on the cross, open the spiritual blessings of heaven, and I'm going to send them to everybody who places their faith in Jesus. I'm going to bless them beyond any of the imagination, beyond anything they ever thought. So he is subject to guardians and trustees until, to the people of Israel, you're under the law of Moses until faith comes, until the date set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were enslaved under the basic principles of the world. He's just talking about there. The person who tries to get what God is giving for free is a slave. Think about it. A slave's life is void of a relationship with the owner. All the slave is is a tool, a piece of property to accomplish something. The life of a slave is work, effort, trying. And then if I don't measure up, if I don't work hard enough, accomplish enough, achieve enough, do enough, then I've got to live in fear of my slave owner. So the life of a slave is works, and the dominant emotion of a slave is fear that my work isn't going to be good enough. That's many believers today. Boy, I don't know if I'm doing enough for God yet. Am I reading my Bible enough? Am I praying enough? Am I going to church enough? Am I confessing all my sins enough? Am I doing enough? Because I'm, li- I'm living in fear that I'm not forgiven. I'm living in fear that I'm going to be out of fellowship. I'm living in fear that I missed a sin in my confessions. So many believers live as slaves, even though they're sons. Because nobody's taught them You're not a slave. It's all free. When somebody gets an inheritance, how much of the inheritance did they work for? None of it. Somebody else did all the work, right? And they just receive the benefits of somebody else's work. Duke University was named after the guy's name. Duke was his last name. Billionaire. He left his daughter billions of dollars. And I saw a documentary on her, I don't know, four or five months ago. And she's done a lot of wonderful things with her money. But I got to watching it, and I'm like, she, she didn't contribute an ounce of sweat to the billion dollars that she received that her dad went to the lawyers and said, at the set time, you give my daughter a billion dollars or how much ever it was. See, you and I are the recipients of the spiritual riches of grace, Paul calls it in Ephesians, the riches of grace. We've all heard that when we define grace as the unmerited favor of God. Unmerited means I didn't work for it. Favor means I've been blessed. I've been blessed by something I didn't work for. I received something I didn't achieve, but it was freely given to me because the blood of Christ runs through us. It's ours. Our Father has blessed us through the death of Jesus with the riches of God's grace, which Paul calls spiritual blessings. And he begins listing them. You're holy, you're blameless, you're sons. And then he keeps listing them, which we'll we'll go through later. We are sons and daughters under grace. But when the time had fully come... See, we're back to this predestined plan. All this was planned before time began. It's predestined. God says, I've got a plan that I'm going to bless people all over the world. Anybody who puts their faith in me... In my son Jesus, anybody who places their faith in me, they're going to inherit these spiritual blessings called the riches of grace. They're just going to come free, they're going to be full, and they're going to be forever. But when the time had fully come, so the time fully came in God's predestined plan. And here's what he says about it. What's that time? When the time had fully come, God sent his son, that's Jesus, born of a woman, that's Mary, born under the law, that's Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, to redeem those under the law. So Jesus came to set people free from the law. So if Jesus came to set people free from the law, the last thing I want to do as a pastor is put people under the law that Jesus came to set people free from, then I'm working against Christ. A pastor's role, a a Bible teacher's role, is to help people see this, not to lead people back to a law-based relationship, but lead them to the freedom and the blessings that are theirs in Christ. 
But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive our adoption as sons. That's what Ephesians 1.4 talks about. It's a spiritual blessing. That Jesus came to redeem people from the law so that they could become sons of the Father. The church is made up of sons and daughters of the Father. Jew and Gentile in one body. Sons and daughters, recipients of the riches of grace. Where God looks at us and says, there's my son, there's my daughter. And he's blessed us with these spiritual blessings. It's relationship. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive our adoptions of sons. And because you were sons, he switched the Greek word here from nipios to weos. And because you were sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. That's what God wants. I cannot relate to God in a father-son relationship as long as I'm living with a law-based mentality. If I'm living with a law-based mentality, then I'm living as a slave. Have I memorized enough verses? Have I meditated enough? Am I having my quiet times? Did I miss a quiet time? Boy, I missed my daily devotion today. I didn't read my Bible passage today. I committed to God that I was going to read the Bible through in a year. And here I am in February, early, early March now, and I've messed up on my plan. God, I'm going to try to do better. I'm going to try, try to get up earlier. I'm going to try to pray harder. I'm going to try to pray more. And so we're living as slaves, trying to get from God what he's giving to us for free. His favor, his forgiveness, his acceptance, his fellowship, his love, his kindness, his goodness, his presence. I was talking with someone actually today, and we were talking about the topic of abiding, which is a phrase we hear a lot. And I was sharing the gospel of grace with a believer probably about eight months ago an elder of a church in Greenville, and I'm sharing him this freedom, the good news of you're in fellowship with God because of Christ and the blood of Christ. You're in right relationship with God. You're holy, you're pure, you're clean. This is your inheritance in Christ, and it's yours, and you contribute nothing to it. And he says, but I still have to abide, right? I have to abide, right? He says, Brad, we still have to abide. And, and I'm like, I understand what you're saying, but if you're trying to abide, you're not abiding. Well, Brad... We have to abide, and the way I abide is I get up every morning, and I go over here, and I get on my knees, and I pray, and, I, and the way I abide in Christ is by praying and reading my Bible and attending church and all the list of things, and by doing that, I'm abiding. Well, the Pharisees did all those things. Jesus is saying to the disciples when he talks about abiding, it's, the, it's faith, it's belief, it's trust. We abide in the work of Christ by faith. I believe that Jesus achieved for me righteousness. That's abiding in righteousness. I believe that Jesus achieved for me forgiveness. Now I'm abiding in forgiveness. I'm living in that forgiveness. I'm living in his righteousness. See, a person can do, you can get up a person and, and abide. I'm going I'm to abide in Christ by having my quiet time and still ask for forgiveness every day for the rest of your life. Which tells me I'm not abiding in forgiveness if I'm asking for forgiveness. Makes sense. But I'm praying every day. I've missed the whole thing. I'm living as a slave when I'm a son. And as a son, God says, you're forgiven. Can't be the father's son if I'm not forgiven. I'm forgiven. So if, if you want to pray every day, I told my friend, that's fine. That doesn't mean you're abiding in the complete forgiveness of Christ or the complete righteousness of Christ or who you are in Christ because all that's free. And you're in fellowship with God, not because you prayed. See, the Pharisees created a religious system out of prayer and out of Scripture reading. reading and, and so much of that is in churches today, that same legalistic approach. Pharisees had it. It's just the religious nature of mankind that gets into Christianity. And it got into this church in Galatia. And because you're sons, first I've got to know I'm a son. Before I can relate to God as father, I've got to know I'm a son. And I'm a forgiven son and a loved son and a righteous son and an accepted son. That's who we are. And God sent the spirit of Jesus into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. The spirit of Jesus in you wants you to know God as Father. See, the spirit of Christ in you is going to lead you not back to the law of Moses, 
The Spirit of Christ is going to lead us, believers, to Abba Father, so that you and I understand that we're sons of the Father, and He's Abba Father. As a 54-year-old man, hey, Dad, what you doing? You know, hello? Hey, Dad, it's Brad. What's going on today? Oh, hey, Brad, what you doing? Nothing, man. I'm sitting here watching a ball game. What you doing? And we just start talking. Man, I miss my dad. I miss my dad. And look, he's still alive. My heart goes out to people who've lost their dad on this earth. Because the one thing you want from a dad that you've lost, I'd love to sit on the couch with him and just talk to him. Watch a ball game with him. Maybe grill a burger with him. He and just enjoy that time. Abba Father. So, hey, look, I get to call my dad. I call him weekly. Hey, Dad, what you doing? And just talk to him about whatever's going on in life. No agenda, no rule, no requirement. Oh, man, it's 6 o'clock. I got to go call my dad but so I can abide in my dad. It's none of that religious. It's just a real relationship. I want to talk to Dad. I'm going to pick up the phone and call him. Or he calls me. See, that's what God wants. He doesn't want slaves. That was life under the law. He wants sons, and he wants daughters, and he wants real relationships. That we just talk about whatever's going on in life. So this person I was talking to this morning, we, that subject came up, and she said, I don't, I don't understand why people think that it, they, they abide in Christ because they have their quiet time. She, she said, I don't get that. Or because they read their Bible, then now they're abiding in Christ. She said... I abide in Christ 24-7. I live by faith the fact that he loves me, and he lives in me, and he's forgiven me, and I'm righteous, and I call him Father. I live in that 24-7. I'm so glad I, don't, I haven't regulated that to a 15-minute quiet time or to a daily discipline of reading my Bible. Man, have we missed it if that's what the Christian life and discipleship has become. And I said, you know what? I agree with you, because that used to be me. I used to be that person. And then when the riches of grace came, it's like a whole new world came to me. And I began living as a son rather than as a slave. And now my passion is to help people understand that you're sons. And God is your father. And it's relationship that has nothing to do with a 15-minute designated time or a daily ritual of reading the Bible. Good if somebody wants to do those things. But there's so much more. I'm just living in that 24-7 I'm in fellowship with God because of Jesus. And I call God Abba Father because of Jesus. It's so, so freeing in this relationship. So we've been adopted or placed into God's family as sons. And then he finishes out, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. Think if that can get into somebody's spirit for a minute. How many believers are living as slaves when they're sons and when they're daughters? What if that truth alone can get into the body of Christ. Man, I'm not a slave to these spiritual disciplines that somebody's placed upon me that if I'm going to abide in Christ, I have to do the disciplines. Now my relationship with God isn't based upon the cross of Christ. It's based upon the disciplines. So we've created a religion when God wants a relationship. And those same people say that phrase. God doesn't want a religion. He wants a relationship. But here's the disciplines. Oh, hold on a second. You see, it happens, and we don't even know it. We've been bewitched, Galatians chapter 3. We've been tricked. We don't even know it. Grace disappeared, and a form of law came, never even saw it. So we're sons and not slaves. And since you're a son, you're also an heir through God. See, you're not a slave, you're a son. You're an heir. An heir to what? What are you and I heirs of? What is God going to bless us with that we didn't contribute an ounce of sweat to? Being forgiven, being righteous, being innocent, being justified, 24-7 fellowship with God, Christ in us. He did it all, and we're the recipients. And now we get to know God and relate to God uh, in a grace-based relationship. So let's look back now at Ephesians 1, should be 4 through 6. It says, in love, that's God's motivation, he predestined or determined before time us the church. The us is the absence of the law. That's what Paul's getting at in Ephesians. He's telling the people 
in Ephesians 2, the law has been abolished. The law has been abolished. It's a new man, a, a new race, a new group of people called the church, Jew and Gentile in one body. And the law, don't bring the law into the church. That's the us. And then he says, in love, God determined this before time for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. So the church is full of sons and daughters. So let's not bring the law of Moses into the church. Let's don't bring the old covenant into the new covenant. Let's don't mix them. And we're going to look momentarily how so much of Christendom brings law into grace and the old covenant into new covenant, and they don't even know that they're doing it because they've never been taught anything different. It's just, it seems the right thing to do. So in love, God predestined us for adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ. According to his good pleasure, it was God's good pleasure to call us sons, right? And daughters. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the beloved one. It's free. It's free. Our inheritance is free. It's freely given to us by God in Christ and received by faith. So look in your notes at these questions. So what does according to the good pleasure of his will mean? It was the will of God to create a plan to place us into his family of grace as sons and daughters. Placing us into his family of grace gives God pleasure. He delights in us being his sons and daughters. What does to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the beloved one, means? God's predetermined plan to bring Jew and Gentile into one body and place them into his family as holy and blameless sons and daughters was a plan of grace, which he freely and fully did for us through Jesus, the one he loves. Grace is God's unconditional love, unmerited kindness, unearned blessings, and unlimited forgiveness freely, fully, and forever given to us in Jesus. By grace through faith, we have become holy, beloved sons and daughters. When Paul saw this plan, this mystery, Paul called it, he called it glorious grace. He called it the kindness of God to us in Jesus. When Paul saw this mystery, it caused Paul to respond in praise to God because he was overwhelmed by God's marvelous grace. So we see in Ephesians that chosen and predestination are not words to describe God's pre-selection of some individuals for salvation while leaving others unsaved. Chosen and predestination has to do with God's pre-planned work of Jesus, which Paul called grace, to bring Jews and Gentiles together in one body, the church, and to make members of this body, God's family of grace, holy and blameless, sons and daughters of Abba Father. And when people receive God's grace through faith in Jesus, they become holy and blameless sons of daughters of Abba Father and eternal members of God's family of grace, the church. And when Paul saw this glorious plan of grace, this mystery, it moved Paul to praise God. God, you're amazing. God, this is incredible. I've never, I, I could imagine something like this. So let's take a look now. It says we have the forgiveness of sins. And we're going to really go real deeply into this word forgiveness. And we're going to look at it under the old covenant. We're going to look at it under the new covenant. And I think it'll become crystal clear to us what forgiveness is to you and I. That's different than how it was to the nation of Israel and those under the law. So in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So we have blood and forgiveness. That's one of the blessings that's ours. We're holy, we're blameless, and now one of the blessings is we're forgiven. So let's take a closer look at forgiveness. Matthew 26, 26 through 28 says, While they were eating, he's with his disciples in the upper, upper room, Jesus took bread, spoke a blessing, and broke it, and then he gave it to the disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. The Greek word there is also testament. The King James Version uses the word testament rather than covenant. And probably testament's the better word. Because a testament has more to do with somebody's final will and testament. And a testament only goes into effect when somebody dies, not while they're living. 
Testament's probably the better word. And what we're going to find out in Hebrews is the entire time Jesus was alive, the New Testament wasn't in effect. When does the New Testament go into effect? According to Jesus, when he dies. The, the writer of Hebrews makes that same point. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So there's a different kind of forgiveness that's coming to the human race. Because there was forgiveness before, before this. So this is a different kind of forgiveness. It's not the same kind of forgiveness that existed in Leviticus and that David asked for when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. It's not the forgiveness that, that Daniel asked for on behalf of the nation Israel or that Nehemiah, God, please forgive us for rebelling to the law and we're sorry that we've rebelled. Please forgive us. Can you find it in your heart to forgive us? This is a whole different kind of forgiveness that needed the blood of Christ to, to bring into effect. This New Testament, this new way of relating to God. Luke 22, 19, 19 through 20. And Jesus took the bread and gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new testament in my blood, which is poured out. For you. So we see that the New Testament, this whole new way of relating to God, happened at the cross. Our calendars are based upon the birth of Christ, right? God's calendar is not based upon the birth of Christ. God's calendar is based upon the cross of Christ. So if you ask God, when did you start relating to people in a new way? When Jesus was born or when he died? And God's going to say when he died, because that's when the New Testament starts. It's a new way that I relate to men. So God's calendar and how he relates to us is based upon the cross of Christ. So the new covenant or the new testament went into effect when Jesus died, not while he was alive. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 through 17. In the case of a will, now that Greek word is testament, okay? In the case of a testament, some verses say, some Bible translations say covenant. It's still the Greek word, the same whether it says testament or covenant or will. In the case of a testament or a covenant or a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will or a testament or a covenant is in force only when somebody has died. And it never takes effect while the one who made it is living. Which Here's, here's his point. That the entire time Jesus was alive... The old covenant was in effect because God had a will. God had some spiritual riches, some spiritual blessings that were going to come to us that couldn't come to us until he died. So God steps out of heaven to earth in the form of Jesus, and he dies. Because if my dad was a billionaire, I wouldn't get a billion dollars if that's the way he set it up until he died. And so Abba Father steps out of heaven, and he comes for his sons and daughters, and he dies. And he says, here's the riches, here's the blessings, you're forgiven. It's his predestined plan. It's the plan that he chose to enact before time began. And now he holds out these spiritual riches that Paul called the riches of grace. You're forgiven, you're righteous, you're holy, you're blameless. And here we are trying to get what he's given for free. And God said, stop working yourself to death. That's what he says in Hebrews chapter 4 when he talks about resting. Our Sabbath rest is not a day or a time. Our Sabbath rest is resting in the finality of the cross. I'm going to rest. I'm not going to try to work for what Jesus went to the cross to give me for free. We've been freely given these things in Christ, and we receive them by faith. So when the covenant of grace went into effect through the death of Jesus, the old covenant of law was set aside. Look at Hebrews 7, 18, 19, and 22 in your notes. So the former commandment, that's the Mosaic law, Exodus through Deuteronomy, the former commandment is set aside because it is weak and useless. What it says, the law of Moses, the old covenant, is weak and it's useless. And then he says, why? Because it can't make anybody perfect. The law of Moses cannot make us eternally forgiven. It cannot make us eternally clean. It cannot make us eternally righteous. The best it could do for the people of Israel was the Day of Atonement when God said, today you're forgiven. And then when they sinned again, they need to get, sacrifice another animal. It was all temporary. It was never full, finished, and forever. So the former commandment, this is the law of Moses, the book of the covenant. 
as Moses calls it. So the former commandment is set aside because it's weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. See, the law of Moses could not guarantee anything. Because the law of Moses was based upon man's effort and man's ability and man's morality and man's trying. So the problem with the law of Moses wasn't the law of Moses. In Hebrews chapter 8, it says God didn't find a problem with the law. He found a problem with the people. Because the people couldn't obey the law, which is that's the point. Now I know I need Jesus. Now I know I'm a sinner. Now I know I need to be saved. And the law convinces me I'm a sinner and leads me to the cross where my sins were paid in full. Law's done its job, finished, over, set aside, don't need it anymore. I'm a son, I'm not a slave. I've been blessed with forgiveness and righteousness and holy standing before God. I've been sanctified by faith. And now I relate to God in this whole new way than before. It's a better covenant by which we draw near to God. I used to think I had to draw near to God. I've got to draw near to God by having my quiet time. I have to draw near to God by praying. I have to draw near to God by reading scripture. That's how you draw near to God. You can't find that anywhere in Hebrews. We draw near to God because we are under a better covenant. And that covenant is based upon the blood of Christ. So I draw near to God because of the blood of Christ has cleansed me of all sin, has forgiven you of all sin. And now we draw near to God. The veil has been ripped, right? The, it, it's, we go right into the presence of God. The presence of God has come to live in us. It's a whole new way of relating to God. Hebrews 8, 6 through 12 says, Now, however, Jesus has received a much more excellent ministry. That's the ministry of the new covenant. So when we're called ministers, it's a phrase used a lot for pastors, right? He's a minister. I don't know if he's a minister or not. If he's mixing the covenant, biblically, he's, he's not a minister. We're going to look at that later, too. A minister of what? The new covenant. If Jesus is a minister of the new covenant, then if I'm a minister, I need to be a minister of what Jesus is a minister of, right? The new covenant. All right, that's, that's what it's saying here. Now, however, Jesus has received a much more excellent ministry. Excellent. The ministry of the new covenant is an excellent, excellent ministry. It changes people's lives. Just as the covenant he mediates, the new covenant or the New Testament, is better and is founded on better promises. What's the better promises of the new covenant? I am forgiven forever, period. I don't ever have to ask for forgiveness. I've been blessed with it. I am righteous forever. I don't try to gain righteousness. I am given righteousness. It's a promise. You place your faith in me, I'm going to give you my forgiveness. You place your faith in me, I'm going to give you my righteousness. You place your faith in me, I'm going to say that you're holy and clean and pure. That's the better promises that the old covenant of law could never, ever achieve. For if the first covenant, that's the law of Moses, had been without fault, no place would have been sought for a second. But God found fault not with the covenant, the old covenant. He found fault with the people. The people of Israel could never obey the law of Moses, right? They never could obey. And they would say, oh, God, I'm sorry. We didn't obey. I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it my best shot. We're going to rededicate ourselves, myself, and I'm going to, I'm going to do better to obey the law. And then they fell again. So it's this cycle in the Old Testament of, I promise I'll obey, I disobey. I'm living under the curses of the law. I repent, and I rededicate myself to trying to obey the law again, and I fail. And it was just this repeated cycle under the Old Covenant. That, that's not the way God wanted people to live. So he says, I'm going to bring in a whole new covenant. And here's what he says. Behold, and he says this while the Old Covenant is in effect. Behold. The days are coming, and we're living in those days. They've already come, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. Now, if you and I, you and I are Gentiles, we're not of the house of Israel. We're not of the house of Jacob. But we find out from Paul that the Gentiles share in the spiritual blessings that were given to Israel. We share in these blessings, in these covenants through faith in Christ. They're ours too, because Israel was there to reach the world, 
And these blessings are not only for Israel, they're for the world. Israel as a nation will one day experience this, but individually through faith in Christ we do. He said this new covenant will will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers, talking about the people of Israel, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not abide by my covenant. So when we talk about abiding, it's abiding in the new covenant. And how do you and I abide in the new covenant? Faith. Somebody can get on their knees every morning for the rest of their life and not abide in the new covenant. If I get on my knees and say, God, forgive me for my many sins, I'm not abiding in the new covenant. I'm praying a prayer that God can't answer because we've already been forgiven in the new covenant. So I abide in the new covenant by believing what the new covenant accomplished. I believe it. I consider it to be true. And now my prayer is, God, thank you. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for what you've done. So it will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not abide by my covenant, the old covenant, and I disregarded them, declares the Lord. For this is the new covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, after the days of the old covenant, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and inscribe them on their hearts. That's the truths of the new covenant. We'll look at that too, not tonight. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer will each one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Because in the new covenant, we have relationship with him. Because in the new covenant, they will all know me, Abba Father, Abba Father. From the least of them to the greatest. And here's the foundation of this covenant. For in the new covenant, I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. See, that's the foundation of the new covenant. And if I'm still trying to get forgiveness, I cannot enjoy the new covenant because I'm still trying to lay a foundation for forgiveness that's already been laid. I'm forgiven. You're forgiven. Now, I can't really get on to knowing the Lord if I'm asking him for forgiveness every day. And you predestine this plan in love. You, you get joy and you get pleasure out of calling me son. So we go to God and we're honest and we're open and we're transparent. And we're real with him. That's the new covenant life that he wants us to enjoy because it gave him great pleasure to enact this plan.